0: Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Truster, And today we are privileged to have an EMS physician from North Jersey. Mike Birkenbush is joining us today. Hi, Dr. Birkenbush. How's
1: it going? Ed? No worries.
0: Not too bad. Uh, so in our quest to uh, try and solve some of the problems with EMS education, we brought Dr. Birkenbush on today because uh, last year at the National Conference of EMS, he did a talk differentiating different chest pains um, for STEMI versus non-STEMI. And I, I thought it was an interesting conversation, so I wanted to get some of that here. So Mike, give us an idea, just, I guess like some of your background, um, and we're gonna link to a paper you published last year about airways, which is incredible. The work that you've done, uh, the papers that you've published are, are really important. Um, it's very, very good work. But, and we talked about this off air, I, I feel like we teach EMTs and medics that chest pain is either a heart attack or nothing. And a, a lot of it kind of gets lost. So to start, I just I want your opinion on it. What was your What are your thoughts on this? And then we'll we'll get into you know what we can do to fix it, what we can do differently, and, and like that.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So uh, this is that's exactly what, what kind of just the, the, the presentation was. I mean, to get the background, I, I was I started as an EMT. Right. That was that's actually what got me into medical school. Uh, it got me where I am today. I I'm still currently work as a medic, so I I know how the field works, and uh, of course work in the ER. And uh, chest pain is one of those uh, diagnosis that I, I think the rough numbers is like 10% of the popla- uh, ED populations comes in for chest pain. Like we, we deal with a lot of chest pain and e- EMS, I think those numbers are probably pretty close. Like this is a very common dispatch, right? It's pain to, uh something you're seeing all the time. And, uh, and we, we kind of set up protocols in order to worry about the, one of the more, most dangerous, uh, diagnosis, right? We really want to worry about acute MI. That's probably number one. Uh, but there's a whole list of both deadly and non-deadly causes of chest pain that sometimes we we just may, may or ignore or we don't really know the outcomes. It's harder for us to kind of picture or uh, uh, differentiate, right? And, and maybe that's really not our biggest role as EMS providers, kind of really getting to the nitty gritty is, uh, is it costochondritis or is this a PE? But definitely we, we want to be asking those questions, to keep it in mind uh, for sure.
0: So do you feel that the biggest difference lies in how patients present or is it a, a gap in education um, cause I, I, again, I feel like as an industry, we've kind of, we we focused on chest pain a lot, right? There's chest pain centers. Um, you know, you have national metrics that are, you know, if someone has a chest pain or if they have a STEMI, we need to have X minutes from door to balloon and from door to needle. And we have all these metrics in hospital. Um, I, I don't know that we effectively have them pre-hospitally. So I, I guess what is a, a, a sort of a root cause analysis of how we got to where we are, And then I want to get into, do do we think that we can teach this change? Is it a, you know, a systems thing, an education thing? How can we start, I guess, expanding the minds of our providers?
1: That's a a great question. Uh, And very very involved in in this uh, kind of conversation. And uh, in one sense, you're right. There's a lot of metrics in hospital. Uh, Just kind of touching on that first. There are some metrics at a hospital now that's expanding, right? The American Heart Association with Mission Lifeline is really starting to look at chest pain from the pre-hospital setting starting point right And uh, we actually do this with our uh, ambulance program as well we're looking at uh, aspirin given uh, different metrics 12 lead time notification time to activate STEMI so I think the real is even the American Heart Association has gradually realized that um, the pre-hospital piece to uh, uh, cardiac care is really important Um, and it's a system of care that starts in the field so I think that's kind of the from one sense, even nationally or, and really beyond that, or internationally from the American Heart Association, we are getting uh, some um, recognition from the EMS side that this is a really important piece starting from the field. And yeah, kind of the whole uh, interesting kind of discussion on, on kind of root cause and how, how we got to where we are um, just looking at how EMS education works, right? We're kind of starting uh, and, it, and it kind of makes sense, right? It's all kind of building box or focus on certain target diagnoses and, and MIs are, and, important one, because we know there's a time-sensitive intervention. The same goes for stroke, uh, really along the same lines, even cardiac arrest, right? These are those things where we know there's a time-sensitive outcome, so it's a, a really heavy focus, and in one sense, by focusing so heavily on uh, those these time-sensitive things which we have to do, we just by probably unintentionally uh, are maybe neglecting a few of the, uh, or in this case, a large percentage of these chest pain patients don't have cardiac disease at all. Right. We can, we can right. Uh, I think it's also less than 10 percent of chest pain patients will have uh, cardi- actual cardiac disease or so we're, uh, we're in one sense skewing the education to the 10 percent and not really discussing the 90 percent of those chest pain patients, um, which is understandable. Right. Because we really got to target those. But uh, I think you're exactly right. Kind of uh, from an education standpoint, hyper focused uh, for a good cause uh, can have un- some unintentional consequences, too.
0: I, it almost feels like during the education side where, you know, all chest pain, I, I feel like for a lot of, especially for BLS providers, we, yeah. we focus on the worst thing, uh, with the idea being, don't think, just think that it's worst case scenario, you know, and, and just, they could be having a heart attack. And that's kind of where we stop. are like, you don't know enough to differentiate from, you know, anginal chest pain from an actual MI. So assume everything is an MI and go to the hospital. And I feel like that's done a lot in EMS education and, and Danny step in on this too, because I, we kind of do it with altered mental status too, right? Like if it's all, if they're altered, they're, they probably are having a stroke. If they're having difficulty breathing, it's probably COPD. And I'm not convinced that casting that wide of a net is, is an effective way to teach or even an effective way to practice. What do you think? Tim? I, I, I'm going to kind of take the opposite side on this. And I think we
2: have a lack of education and a lack of clinical skill Uh, that we've, we've chosen to give to EMTs that I don't know that this is a good thing for them to differentiate, except in really, really extreme cases. I think, you know, obviously if you have sharp inspiratory pain on your left chest, on your right chest wall, I'm pretty good with be an EMT saying it's not a cardiac event, um, on the other hand, some of these things are so vague and we miss so many things. There was a recent paper that just came out that just showed EMS was missing a lot of stroke diagnosis, a lot of things that we focus on. I guess I guess the question that I would have is, how can we do this and make them better and not see a drop off in quality?
0: And, and Mike, I think that's probably the, the bigger question that we're, we're kind of getting at uh, here is, you know, if I'm an EMT, right, I'm going into a patient with chest pain I, obviously, I'm not, and you know, we have to be careful not to say that we're because we're not diagnosing, right? We're just taking just taking our field impression. Right. Um, what what are some steps that EMTs can take to kind of, I guess, guide them a little bit more? Toward, I'm I'm worried that this is a STEMI, so it's going to need you know a paramedic unit, more interventions. I have to go to a specialty center, versus you know I, I can take this patient to my community hospital because of some of these presentations. Of course, nothing we're saying is a diaspora. There's you know your system is your system. Follow your protocols and all the other legal
1: things that we have to say before we get in the conversation. <laughs> right? No, exactly. <laughs> I think Dan's point is well taken, and, and that uh, when it comes to life-threatening diagnosis, we cast a wide net and we always want the air on the side of caution. And, and to be honest, we do the same thing in the emergency room all the time, right? Someone comes in for chest pain, even though my suspicion is really low that it's cardiac. Am I still going to do an EKG? Oh, you hundred percent of the time, right? Am I still going to probably order troponin in certain cases? Absolutely, right. So, and it's almost the same. We deal with the same issue. But I think the key, uh, I guess, my key thought process on this is exactly what you're getting at, is uh, the field impression. So just because someone says they have chest pain, don't stop asking questions. Really try to narrow it down a little bit more. Are they having a cough and then have to chest pain, right? Is this pneumonia? Uh, and you can you can absolutely make a field impression uh, with somebody There's really harrowing uh, down on uh, your assessment skills. I think that's, to me, the important piece. Like, uh, in the end, are may you still need ALS for whatever the reason is, and uh, are you still going to, depending on the scenario, maybe so if you're not sure. And when there's any doubt in your mind, right, you're always going to err on the side of caution. Uh, but if they said they had chest pain and then you palpate their album and their pains are the right upper quadrant and then the start after eating a meal, you might think, wait a second here. This doesn't sound like the heart attack.
0: <laughs> what time. could that be from? <laughs>
1: and, I, mean, astral- and that's, I,
0: I think that's something that, that we encounter a lot. And you know, anecdotally, Dan and I have talked plenty of times. How many patients do you get that have abdominal pain that is mistaken as, you know, like xiphoid chest pain? Yeah. You know, where it's it's like, okay, but that that's literally where your stomach sits, so it's probably something else. And I I again, I, I worry how much of the the protocols and the teaching is. You know, you're only as good as the lowest common denominator, right? So, but I, I I feel like teaching like that sort of dumbs down the rest of education, where it's you know if okay if this is the lowest common denominator, then it's chest pain equals MI, off you go. And That's the classic text twenty
2: two two of what we're doing. I mean, we, we, we want people to be clinicians. We want them to understand things. On the other hand, we give them a limited knowledge base and we expect them to make a call like that. Like, you know, is it a stroke? Is it bells? I, you know what? I've messed that up myself. Um, you know, is it chest pain? Is it cardiac? Is it something else? Is it a female? Is there, what other confounders are going on here? I mean, I, I don't, I think we'd have to
0: overhaul the entire system which is probably what we need to do (laughs) overall (laughs) anyway. Um, But, Mike, go through, I guess, go through some of the physiological differences, right? Because we know that men and women present differently. Um, It's something that we talk about a lot in class. But, you know, for for the uninitiated or for people who have sort of forgotten, give me some of, like, some of your points, like, your bigger points where this is a classic abnormal presentation or this is a classic mimic that... It, like I, I want people to be able to take home something where they're like, Oh, I heard it. I heard this on the show. This is a common mimic of an MI, but it's usually benign.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. A couple, a couple of them um, that I can uh, talk about offhand. Uh, one kind of more interesting one is pericarditis, uh, which is maybe a tough one to catch, uh, catch up on, but more often we actually did see this on some, some degree post the COVID vaccines and so forth, um, but just can come out of nowhere. People have in pain, maybe they present with palpitations some chest pain. Uh, but interestingly, uh, the pain gets worse when they're laying down and their pericardium is kind of irritated as laying against the chest wall, versus when they sit up and say more freely and less pain. Uh, so, kind of positional, and a lot of often, often more younger, let's say younger males per se, not that it can happen in an older population too. Uh, but just kind of if you see in a pup, and it's someone who doesn't really fit for ACS, uh, sometimes also pleuritic pain with that. Um, so kind of well, interesting. And also with with something like
0: pericarditis too, they might have they might have an infectious process before that. So, you know, exactly. the, the story might be, oh well, I had a cold for a couple of days, and now I have this. You know, we we might mistakenly think that it's you know like costochondritis, like it's a cough, but you know, even something like that, we're like, all right, lie down for a second. Does it get worse? Great. Now we kind of have a better idea of what it is because usually MIs aren't positional.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, and, and it's kind of <laughs> interesting. I just had a uh, well, kind of a great case of someone who. Uh, well, ended up not being pericarditis. At least, well, we're not sure exactly. Uh, maybe idiopathic pericarditis, who had like flu-like symptoms a couple days before and showed up actually as unresponsive um, and hypotensive, and turned out they had a tamponade from pericardial effusion, maybe due to idiopathic pericarditis. So, so really interesting how that uh, that really uh, swung obviously to the, the severe end too um and that's i think the other thing to i mean yes there's the the mimics and then there's the other dangerous causes of cardiac chest pain that uh like aortic aortic uh, dissection uh, that's a tough one uh, i'll be honest uh i i mean there's a couple of things to to think out uh think about like if they're saying tearing chest pain radiates to back that's kind of the first like maybe usual descriptor right, right? um but still can be hard there can be atypical t- uh, presentation especially if people are older not feeling the same things the same way um, I've had some really interesting presentations there. someone the only of stomach pain and it was a dissection all the way from the top of the arch. And you're like, how come they're not having chest pain? What's going on you here? Chest your stomach? Um, you right. sure? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that, that's a tough one. Uh, but if they're if you kind of get that tearing situation, someone probably has a history of hypertension, uh, unequal blood pressures, and look sick, well, that whole sick not sick situation. Definitely want to keep in mind and not just assume, uh, that they're, um, just and this is the other problem, right? With the chest pain protocols. If you if you were doing your assessment, like wait a second, this person just doesn't look well. Maybe, maybe it's in my but some maybe it could be dissectional. Why don't we check pulses both sides? That's an easy thing to do. Blood pressure is both sides. And you if you gave that patient nitro, you actually get, could cause harm too. Um Right. If let's say they had nitro for some reason, right? And on hand and SMT well, and, their,
0: and aspirin too, right? You're just everything
1: like the entire chest pain protocol is gonna make them worse. Right, exactly. So that's that's the other thing, side of the pro, the pro, a little difficulty with protocols, uh, and and yeah, it's a it's a tough tough thing to kind of teach to. But that's definitely one to keep in mind. Also, uh, we kind of mentioned the right upper quadrant pain that was going with uh, cholecystitis being a, 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 another mimic, which can easily be. Um, I mean, pneumonia is kind of getting the history, and these days, COVID, I mean, even prior but, yeah, to yeah, the <laughs> whole COVID era, a lot of people just come in with chest pain while they have COVID, <laughs> um, more often than not, actually. <laughs>
0: Well, and and I think that was an interesting kind of thing that people started noticing more during the pandemic was the kind and the amount of chest pain that coughing can cause you. Um, you know, how often, Dan, have we seen costochondritis in the field? And like, you know, you get the description, you're like, oh, well, uh, their pain gets worse on inspiration, palpation, and movement, and it's isolated to their fifth intercostal space like, okay, like that, that's almost where you want to have that differentiator. Like there's, there's chest pain, but then there's also pain in the chest and the <laughs> two are not necessarily that's, treated equal. That's,
2: all, that's also where, you know, you start asking questions like, okay, how long has this been going on? You know, I think time right. frame for me is a big determinant of do I think this is cardiac or not? Because if you've had this for a week, I, I think the odds of you having an, an active MI are pretty low. Um, if... You know, if I can make the story fit, and that's what we don't, that's why I, I think we need to start teaching EMTs, is if you make the story fit, then it, it works better. You know, right. just an isolated symptom, there's so many things going on. But when you add in these other things, when you actually talk to your patient and get the story from them, you're going to find out things that they weren't going to say. You're going to find out that they've had this for three or four days um that every time they that they've been coughing a lot uh, that there's some tenderness on palpation that doesn't sound cardiac on the other right. hand you get that little old lady that just doesn't feel right and she's tired and she doesn't know why and she usually does everything at home that's the one I want to sit down and get the 12 leader, and I want to do more of a, a, a an evaluation to kind of rule out some things but asking questions and talking to your patients is so important and something we really don't teach well.
1: That's awesome, Dan. I mean, you pretty much in my mind hit the nail on the head and um, kind of the, the whole assessment piece is so, so critical uh, to come and then integrating that information that you're getting from the patient and, and then kind of coming up with their field impression is such a critical piece of education. Um, and it's really not easy to teach like how to talk to somebody and how to gather the information without also skewing your information, right? What by not right. first not asking leading questions like oh you're not having chest pain right like that's not the way to ask it you say are you yeah. having chest discomfort because then they'll say oh no i'm not having pain i'm having just dis- that's not pain that's a pressure that's a to be yeah. so careful i'm just or, or
0: describing the types of pain that describing exactly. the types of pain is something as a as a principal question if you ask the right. question if you ask the patient like <laughs> what kind of pain are you having and they don't understand the question it's fine to clear to clarify but if you ask like would you say that your pain is burning crushing stabbing uh you know tearing?" Like given those options, the patient is going, you've conditioned them to, to answer the question. And a lot of times patients will think that there's a right answer. So right. you'll, you know, is, is your pain a certain type of something? And a patient might say, well, I mean, I guess it's tearing, but you leading them in that question is now taking you down a diagnosis path that is just incorrect,
1: yeah. you know,
0: ba- based off of our own biases. And I think that, that, that we have to watch out for confirmation bias as well. Where yeah. you know you walk up and you're like, I think you're a heart attack, so I'm going to make sure that everything fits heart attack. You know, like a, the, a, I mean, I until actually, proven different
2: thing, but taken to the wrong end. <laughs> and that's one of the things we've got to teach: the open-ended question, the classic, "What's bothering you today?" You know, right. how long has this been going on? What does it feel like to you? You know, and let them explain. And again, good point you made with using pain over discomfort, or you know, not feeling well because. They don't qualify as pain. Men don't qualify as
1: pain. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think it the open-ended uh, open uh, point is, is great. Like, you're, we're already skewed by a dispatch. And I got the say, like, EMS or ER, like, you're, you're skewed by what your chief complaint is. Uh, right. And instead of saying, how's your chest pain today? Like, exactly what you said. What's going on today? And sometimes you're led down a completely different path. I mean, just let the patient kind of explain why, what, the, what actually symptom brought this on and not just. The dispatcher somehow the dispatcher got from Pro QA, uh, which can be vastly different, as we know. Uh, sure. I mean, anyone doing EMS knows that. Uh, so just kind of like you said, just getting some open ended, you let them talk, and then you gotta kind of hone down that uh, in a non-biased fashion. Um, and yep. sometimes you're not gonna come come up with an answer, right? There's some days you just I don't know which one it is, but at least get us kind of risk your risk in mind. Is this? Yeah. Is there's still risk here for an MI? And then we're gonna treat as such, and that's okay. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's perfectly my, fine
0: that. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, yeah. Or it could be the contrary. We're like, I have a, like, all this information is really pointing away from my body completely. And this is clearly like, I don't know, um, pancreatitis or something. <laughs> like, right. Like they're alcoholic and they're drinking. You know, yeah. There's so many different ways to look at it.
2: Yeah. I, I've and done I, that to patients too in the back of the truck. I'll sit there and go, look, honestly, I don't think you're having a heart attack. However, that's the most dangerous thing that it can be. And I'm going to treat you for that because I want to make sure you're safe. Exactly. Yeah, And when the doctor tells you it's something different, I just don't want you to think I'm an idiot.
1: I'm just <laughs> protecting you. Exactly. I think right, that's, if a, that's
2: an EMS. That's what we should do.
1: Exactly. And I think that's a great, great way to actually, that's a great conversation to have with a patient. Like we're not really sure, or, or like this is what we kind of think is going on, but to be safe, here's what we're going to do. And that's a great way to explain it. And that's also doesn't set us for a failure in the ER where they thought, or where they because they do get important perspectives from EMS. And sometimes we don't really get to appreciate this. But what you say to them, does have an impact on how they expect their care to be down the road. Um, and I've had that numerous times where it's like, well, the EMT said on scene that maybe it was this or the paramedics said this. And so it can be skewed sometimes in wrong directions or right directions, right? It can be, it can go both yeah. ways. And, and that does play a role on what they're anticipating down the line. Um, so that definitely is meaningful.
0: And I think the honesty with your patients is an important thing that's missed too. I mean, I've, I've told patients like, it, it looks like you're having a heart attack. So this is what's happening. When we get to the hospital, there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to ask you all the same questions. They're all very excited to see you. And there's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff that's going to happen. You know, and similarly, if you're not sure, like, listen, there's a bunch of things that this could be. But in the end, we're going to have to go to the hospital to find out what it is one way or the other. Right. And I, I think that's kind of the the most important thing is that you know what? you have you have your your clinical gestalt that we've talked about a lot. You have your thought process, your your treatment options, your hospital options. You're always going to want to err on the side of the patient. This is more of a conversation where, you know, we don't want people to think that, well, every chest pain is a heart attack until proven otherwise because that's what my protocols say. And it's like that no, there's so much more nuance to it that, You know, and you could, if you want to err on the side of caution and every chest pain is an MI, great, fine. But you're going to find that a lot of those patients aren't having MIs. Um, You know, I I can say anecdotally, and I feel like there's data to support this, but I I could be absolutely wrong. Um, Women typically don't present with with pain. They usually present with shortness of breath or, you know, like an ache to their back and and fatigue. And that's just generalized, right? So walking into a female patient who's complaining of chest pain, you don't want to just disregard their complaint or their pain and say, no, it's not a heart attack right? That's, that's that full assessment that we've talked about. But just as much as you want to have kind of the idea in mind that this patient could get a lot worse, you also kind of want to have the idea in mind that this patient might not be as sick as maybe I want them to be.
1: That's a fair way to look at it. Yep.
0: <laughs> so, uh, and just, so, One of the things that has, has kind of, and this is just a a fun question before we wrap up, Mike, do you feel, I have two, two things that uh, happen in the field and I I just want your opinion on them Um, for point of care troponin. I want to know if you think that there's a value to paramedics or EMS in general doing point of care troponin. And I want to know if you think there's any value to EMTs learning how to uh, either read or understand cardiac monitors and EKG strips. That's
1: both interesting questions. Uh, And, being a, we a we'd like to have fun, machine. Mike. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, I I, well, I guess I, I should. Uh, let me clarify this a little bit. So, in one sense, uh, one as working as a flight physician at Wisconsin, we actually carry an EPOC device, which is basically like an ICE, for those more familiar with ICE it so basically includes like maybe 15 components to that. Uh, not <laughs> doesn't have any one of them on a helicopter, but you're know, usually not flying uh, directly from the scene so often. That, undifferentiated chest pain um but do i think it'd be an interest I, I think as this i mean the, i'm sure you guys talked about et3 and this whole model of care gradually changing over time which which i, don't know, I mean obviously et3 itself maybe not be the uh, the end result model but yeah exactly that's a whole note we could go on for a little time there but uh just the whole i mean clearly we're doing problems with the workout in the er uh, the gradual shift to uh, more advanced ems cares is, is kind of continues to happen over time um, I, I could see a role for an stat troponin in specific instances for sure. Um, there's been some studies on this. The, the one, the one problem is always going to be onset of pain, right? So if the pain just happened, right. the first troponin is basically meaningless. Uh, so that's the biggest problem. So if the pain is new onset prior to calling, uh, the stat troponin is a useless test in my opinion. Like, and we've had, I've had this with that many patients <laughs> with a normal troponin <laughs> they're the first one, you need the three yep. hours. So there's nothing you can do about that. That, that That's hard. Now it's a person who had chest pain for over 12 hours uh, a, a negative troponin <laughs> who's, who's really now big, out of the window and can't be treated <laughs> yeah a <yeah>, negative troponin <laughs> at that point is a really predictive of uh, uh, no cardiac event so there's there's benefit right. now the the real question is can you avoid ed visits with this with a specific uh, medical directed protocol <laughs> i think it could be crafted uh and uh, when, and i i would be for it in specific you, could, you would have you have to obviously set up a whole bunch of guideline a framework for how this would work what type of patients probably be a med control kind of discussion for release you know uh, but could you do it i think absolutely Uh it just it would take a lot of education to work and a specific probably some protocols and medical director piece so that we can have the input of this is what i think is going on and talk to the You've got to control the phone. Like, like look, here's what we're at. This is kind of atypical with no risk factors, uh, maybe lower age, right? All things that say this is a low risk patient. And then ideally you'd want to be able to also find out ways you can follow up with cardiology. Here's refer like how, ways to do this. Maybe with telemedicine, there's different ways to kind of integrate it, but uh, I think we got a little ways to go. Uh, that would be awesome. Um, as far as I, tra- I set your opponents go, as far as the 12 leads. So someone was just showing me uh, these uh, kind of new apps that are even, obviously we know the readouts on 12 leads are bad, right? So interpreting them as always kind of a, a bone of contention and how that's done uh, a new app. No, no, they, they work machines. well. They wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so Computers uh, as, a, as AI progresses, <laughs> maybe this ends up being more and uh, actually pushed to the BLS level more than we, than we currently do. Cause really there's, uh, I mean, you can argue like AI is probably better than me right now. I'm sure already. Um, there are AI programs that are great, um, so there's that that piece to it. So I, I do think that has high potential to expand, probably with the conjunction of an AI. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of systems that are maybe not so much in New Jersey, but allowing uh, there are more in the country, allowing BLS uh, to do 12 leads and then just sending to the to the hospital or the cardiologist. So that's that's no matter what I say from the ER. Sp- Point, the cardiologist is still not going to wake up out of bed unless you see a in a lot of cases. So there's always that piece of how do you get around that. But having the acquisition in an area with, with potentially uh, poor ALS coverage or, or, missed, uh, or missed ALS calls or whatever the case is where you're having a enough where you can make a justification for doing the extra trains. I mean, putting on the EKG is not that hard. And getting the technology yeah. to uh, make it useful, I mean, over time I think that will <laughs> be coming down the line also.
0: Well, that's what I think is interesting about the, the EKG conversation is, you know, there's there's the technology aspect or technologists aspect where, you know, you have to read it, interpret it, but it's also just kind of a picture that you can send on to the receiving hospital. So I, I, I'm i interested in the, the AI thing. I think that's very interesting. But Mike Birkenbush, EMS physician from North Jersey, our home. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be right back after this. This episode of the Overrun Podcast is brought to you by Team Life. Your hands can save a life. Learning how to perform high-quality CPR can be the difference for someone experiencing cardiac arrest. Team Life offers CPR certification classes throughout New Jersey taught by trained professionals. Sign up today for CPR certification classes at teamlife.com and learn the skills necessary to save a life. Anyone can be a hero. Now back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. Thanks to Mike Birkenbush for uh, appearing on our A segment. And Dan, that was a really good discussion. I I feel like we kind of heard a lot and learned a lot that we hadn't really thought of before.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, Just something, a mundane bread and butter call like the ones we get all the time. How many different facets are involved and how much we really
0: don't know? Um, Dunning-Kruger is
2: alive and well
0: boy, is it? And I think that one of the things that we want, one of the reasons we wanted to get them on the show is, you know, we're dispatched to chest pain a lot. Like it's, you know, alter mental status, chest pain, it it feels like kind of automatic. And generally speaking, it feels like the, I guess the thought, the the ethos is that any chest pain could be a really serious MI and thus we should send, you know, send everybody, send the medics, send BLS. And I, I, at a fundamental level, I understand sort of the the onus behind that but i almost wonder if that's where our problems with over triaging start is you know if we start in the classroom and say you should just as as an emt you should just assume that every chest pain is a heart attack i i understand why we teach that it's it it just it feels like almost laziness at some point where instead of teaching you know differential pathology we're just saying yeah chest pain equals heart attack and that's what it is is it, is it laziness or is it we're not confident
2: in our students and we're not confident in our own abilities to ask these questions and be confident in the story we get? I, That's fair. That's I, wonder, fair. Yeah. I wonder if it's that. I think there's a hesitance and I think it's very easy, especially for an EMT level uh, BLS clinician to go, it's chest pain, go to the hospital, get a cardiac workup. And right. they're, they're fundamentally right. As Dr. Birkenbush said, the vast majority of these people are at least going to get a 12 lead and a troponin level, um, sure. just, if not for a rule out. But there are questions that we can ask in the field that can really make a difference to – the pathway that patient makes through the emergency department, that was the big takeaway I took from his, from him talking to us was how much he really depends on the report from the field provider. Mm. about what's going on with the patient? What did the patient present with more importantly, what did you find on your assessment that he needs to be aware of? Um, yeah. You know, we, we tend to think of EMS and it's, it's very fashionable to think of us as kind of a pirate band that we're you know <laughs> that nobody listens to us nobody cares we're like philadelphia fans and hey, uh, hey 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 well you have the you All guys right? have the song i don't I, uh,
0: <laughs> I mean well listen shout out to travis kelsey our our fellow podcaster for coming up with the best song for philadelphia fans ever um but but getting back to jason it jason kelsey jason kelsey not travis kelsey yeah. Boyfriend. Um, uh, so, yeah can't imagine how i confused the two of them <laughs> Um, but I,
2: I, I think that that was a good takeaway for people to understand that they do listen to us. They are very, they are interested in what we found and what the story is. And we should take advantage of that. We should keep, we should try to get that information and have that delivered to the emergency department. So that patient gets a good, accurate trajectory through the emergency department and to whatever, ever definitive care they're going to get. I know we made a comment that we don't diagnose and we do that with air quotes and no, we don't come up with definitive diagnoses that people can leave and say, well, I had this except in very rare circumstances. Um, but we do diagnose. If you're giving medications or prescribing a treatment for something that you think is going on with the patient, that's a diagnosis. It may change. Yeah, I, I think. diagnosing. Uh...
0: I don't know. I, we spent a long time, you know, as an industry going over, like, is it a field impression or is it a diagnosis? And like, it's, it, it's a semantic argument that I think like it wastes time, right? We, we spent a long time in New Jersey arguing over whether uh, a certification is tantamount to a licensure. And it, it's a, it, you know, it, it's a semantic difference at, at, at some point, but, and again, I'm not, I'm not just disparaging the licensure uh, approach in New Jersey. I think it's probably better, but at, at some point, you know, undifferentiated chest pain can probably be differentiated in the field, right? Like I don't, I don't think we teach EMTs about costochondritis. I, I know we don't teach them about pleurisy. We don't yeah. spend a lot of time going into, you know, we talk about pneumothoraces, but we don't really go into them. You know, we don't really talk about pericarditis. We don't really talk about endocarditis. So yeah. I, yeah. I I can appreciate the approach. Right. And I wonder if it's, there's so many possibilities for what chest pain can turn into or what chest pain might be, if we're, again, we're talking about like casting that wide net, right? Like, well, we might as well treat it like an MI. And then if we're wrong, at least then we treated them right way. But I feel like there's, there's so much in the thorax that can cause problems, can cause pain, can cause whatever, that it would behoove or benefit EMTs to know like, all right, there's musculature in between the ribs. So if someone is, for example, a smoker, specifically like a smoker in their forties, fifties, whatever, and they have point tenderness in between their ribs, that's probably muscular. Right. Yeah. No, that's fair. Like that's I, and, and again, I, I, I can appreciate Absolutely the whole, fair. like, well, what if it's not? But I, I worry that there's been a lot of teaching that's been done by people who are like, well, one time I had someone who, you know, like I, I had a 93 year old who complained about being thirsty and she had an MI. Right. So. But I, I, don't, I don't assume every 93-year-old is having an MI if they have kind of an abnormal complaint. But I, no. I, I think we have to have this kind of – this balance of having a high index of suspicion but also having a, a really effective assessment well, to try that and see you know, from, what works.
2: Yeah, and that's going to come from learning – and it, it's, it's on the individual clinician to do this. You only get a certain amount of information when you graduate your program whether it's EMT, paramedic, whatever. It is the basic tools for you to function at your capacity. That's it. You get to learn a lot more by learning and doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of this stuff is skill is skills that you're adding to your toolbox. You know, when you assess somebody and you find out that it's not a heart attack or, you know, that it was costochondritis, go back and find out what made, that, what made them make that call. What was the decision points? Um, you know, I go back and follow up on my patients as much as I possibly can. Um, a fair amount of times, I'll tell you, I even being in the job as long as I have, I'm still surprised. I get things like... Oh, sure. oh what was yeah. that? Wow! How did and thing? that too, huh? How did that happen? You know, and I yep. will. I will say that. And you know, as long as they're not knee deep in something else, the most most nurses, most doctors will talk to you and share the information. And yeah. especially your docs, they do. They do enjoy teaching. I mean, there's a few that are real, just you know, grump, grumpy gooses. But <laughs> um, for the most part, this is all stuff you're going to learn down the road. Like we don't teach, for example with strokes. We don't teach Bell's policy when we're teaching EMT students strokes. Right.
0: We sure. really I mean it's I've I, I I can say anecdot like I've made sure to teach it in in classes that I've taught and I know you have as well, but it, it's not it's not a curriculum thing is, it's not is really a the problem.
2: Thing. It's not on the differential. It's not expected and yeah. it's something that's out there and it exists. I had one three months ago. Um, it was there. You know, and mm-hmm. yeah, we stroke alerted it, but I was like, I'm not sure. I don't know. This, something's not right here. And the doc's like, it's bells. I'm like, yeah. wow. How did you So tell me what I missed? And he goes, well, it's this and here's this and here's a point and here's a pearl. And I was yeah. like, great. Now it's in my tool.
0: And, and the the easiest thing with something with bells, because it's the difference between an upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron injury. If you're not sure if someone's having a stroke or if they have bells, have them raise their eyebrows. Stroke. You know, fares they can the if they can crinkle their forehead and they're still having those signs, it's a stroke. If they can't crinkle their forehead, they have Bell's palsy. And again, I'm sure someone somewhere is like, well, what if they have Bell's palsy and a stroke? And I'm like, all right, well, uh, yes, then, then treat it as a stroke. Could, man, yeah. And then an the asteroid could get,
2: you know. Right, right exactly. Like exactly. More, man, yeah. And uh,
0: we're, <laughs> yeah. But I, so when assessing these chest pain patients, I, again, I, I feel like people are worried that they're going to get in trouble. If they don't, you know, try and stimulate alert it, or if you're an EMT and you're worried that, you know, I, I didn't call medics or I canceled medics or whatever, um, I, I think there is a very significant fear of, you know, litigation, lawsuits, and whatever. And, and again, we're not lawyers, so enough, you know, that, there's that disclaimer. But it, it occurs to me that as long as you're acting in the best interest of the patient, You'll probably be fine, but you can apply your your clinical gestalt and that knowledge to your assessment of the patient, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, my patient's got chest pain to the you know left lateral side, right around here, around like the third, fourth intercostal space. You know, if, if you're an EMT and you're going through that assessment, and the patient's skin is warm and dry, they're talking to you in full sentences, they're normotensive, they're normal right? There's no other like outlier. Type of presentation. Odds are, if it, like, because we talked about before, right? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Right? Oh. And that that can be muscular pain. Pain that's reproducible on the assessment is almost always muscular. Now, again, nothing we're saying is is a diaspora, right? Nothing we're saying is holistic. There's always going to be outliers. There's always going to be, you know, the one provider that you worked with who's like, well, I, one time I had a patient who was having a heart attack and they had reproducible pain and. You know, this way every reproducible and pain is never, ever, ever look at
2: anything else.
0: Right. And I I don't know that that's true. Now, and again, this isn't to discourage people from going to the hospital if they have chest pain or uh, an EMT assessing a patient as an MI if they have chest pain. It's more, at some point, it becomes a resource allocation thing, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, we, we already have a shortage of EMS providers, we already have a shortage of medics. So, it is going to fall into the purview of BLS providers to do these, you know, kind of really well done, thorough BLS assessments and realize, okay, this patient is probably not cardiac pain. Now, again, you can be wrong. And I want to I reinforce, too, like, it's okay to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, medicine is medicine's a practice for a reason. Right. Right. But... In that type of setting, you know, you don't necessarily have to worry about, you know, your job security or being so worried about getting a chart kickback, which again, I I think as a culture, we're kind of, we kind of make uh, chart QA tantamount to discipline, which is, is not the case in a lot of places. I think we worry
2: about a lot of things in this job that we probably shouldn't. And we don't worry about things that we probably should. Um, I think it's probably right. You know, look, you know. There is nothing wrong as an EMT with ask, like Dr. Birkenbush said, ask the questions. Yep. Make, a, make a determination based on what you see. Does that mean that that person's not going to get a workup for a rule out cardiac? Not necessarily. It just means that they're not going to get it that immediate full court press. Um, yep. Is that good for the patient? It's probably what the patient needs. Most patients generally fall to getting what they need. It's not, you know, there. but here's a hot take that I'm going to take from this before we move on is EMTs are going to have to start realizing in this world that even though you're just an EMT, and I put that in air quotes, we are going to expect you, you're going to be expected to know more and to be able to apply more and do more than you've ever done before, simply because of the nature of where this, where this industry is going. We have less people coming into the profession. There are less people to serve the community. More people look at it as a quick stepping stone. Turnover is enormously high. And the clinicians that we have on the road today are going to be expected to, to know more. Um, yeah. it's, it's just, it's going to be the way it's going to be. And these are tools that you can start putting in your pocket and in your toolbox and using in the field. And for the vast majority of people, you're going to be doing better care for your patients.
0: Right, and and again, something that we didn't really talk too much about is finding the right center to take that patient to.
2: That's going so to be you know,
0: if, and, and if future, you have a cardiac center that's near you, yeah. that's something that you need to consider. And the
2: future of that—that's—that's that's where the future is going. Let's be honest, and sure. that's what the the future is going to be, and that's where you're going to make these determinations that maybe you will not have an ALS provider available for you for this call. Maybe that warrants taking the person to the cardiac center because you've got a suspicion over the over the yeah. community hospital that doesn't have PCI or have cardiac surgery. Uh, those are going to be the determinations you're going to have to make. And how are you going to do that? Clinical skills, your clinical exam, your gestalt that you're going to apply and say, what am I really seeing here? What's behind it? What could it be?
0: And uh, you know, I, we talked about getting to know the, the staff and like that, and there is a reality that the, the more you know the staff at your receiving facility, the more you interface with them, the better you get to know them, the more the staff is going to understand how you treat people and how you respond to things. There's an unfortunate reality that knowing the staff is going to make the patient get treated better simply because you personally know the staff, as opposed to walking into a strange hospital. But again, that's where you have to kind of not necessarily be forceful, but you have to say like, listen, I have a patient who's sick. I don't know what's wrong with them and they need to be fixed, right? Mm-hmm. They need to be treated. So yeah. there there are some variables within the hospital that are kind of tough to get around. But let's get into our final thoughts for this uh, because we've been talking about doing this episode for a while. So your final thoughts, Danny, on chest pain for the BLS provider.
2: Uh, it's it's something that you need to learn about. It's something that we need to put a lot more effort into looking at the differentials. Um, not every chest pain is cardiac. Uh, not every cardiac is chest pain. Um, it's, it's comes down to you as a clinician, seeing your patient, putting hands on them, asking the questions, getting a good history and applying that, Applying what you know to that to come up with a, be- with a decision that's the best for the patient. And if you do that, you might make mistakes down the road, but you're not going to be held as someone who didn't do the right thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, again, as long as you're acting in the best interest of the patient, it, there's really not a lot to be worried about. But I do think taking that, that five or 10 minutes during your assessment, right? And, okay, when did this, this chest pain start, right? Did it start acutely? Has it been going on for a while? Does anything make it better or worse? And trying to figure out where the actual, you know, the, the nitus of that pain is, whatever the causative factor of that pain is. And an important question that I don't know that we ask enough is, you know, and this is all stuff that goes back to the sample history that you get in EMT school, right? You know, the last thing, what were you doing before this started? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's concerns in what you were doing before this started. So let's say you have someone who was lifting right? Are the pain that you're having in your chest, did it start like right after you bench pressed 240 pounds, you know, three sets of 12 or, you know, or were you, were you sitting at home where it's more of like an unstable angina type of presentation where the patient was just sitting comfortably and then suddenly the pain started because those are two very different patient presentations. Right. And first, they're, they're the two very. Varied... I'm, I'm not really interested. The second one, I'm a little bit interested. Yeah. And, and the first one, you know, it's entirely possible that you can, you know, throw a clot and have an MI while you're lifting weights. There's nothing to say that that doesn't happen. Sure. But again, looking at the entirety of but the. But I'm picture, not looking the, at a healthy
2: the... weightlifter who had no history prior yeah. to that felt a sharp pain when he was exercising and on movement, he has a problem. I'm not looking that as cardiac.
0: Right. And, it's, and the, the story makes sense, right? He didn't have any pain. He lifted in a group that specifically targeted his chest muscles. Now he's got chest pain, right? That, that, that all adds up when a patient is telling you a story or like, well, I was sitting here and I was watching, you know, cartoons or whatever. And then I started developing chest pain. There's no explanation for the, for that chest pain. A little more. Right? One of the things I really like too, is the associated
2: symptoms, because I think yeah. to me, that just does a red that's just a red flag. Um if somebody gets the chest discomfort and you know I use discomfort instead of pain because a lot of people go well it doesn't hurt it's just pressure you know? yeah um but if they got nauseous if they got sweaty if they got sick to their stomach uh, yep. if they got dizzy if they felt like something wasn't right if they just got a really bad feeling when this happened that's got my attention those associated yeah. a, acute those
0: onset can... of general not feeling well is is always something that is it's kind bad, of a always red flag bad for me. Until proven flag
2: Now, am I I putting a twelve lead on both patients? Probably. Yeah.
0: I mean, but again, the need for a twelve lead lead. doesn't necessarily denote, you know, the the need for a twelve lead doesn't necessarily denote the need for a medic unit. Right. But But, but, I I do understand the differentiation.
2: Right. But you know, if I'm there and that's in my scope of practice, the guy who's getting weight lifted, the weight lifter, I'm still going to do one because if it comes up normal, it's more evidence that tells me I'm on the right path.
0: Yeah. It's probably true, but again, from the BLS level, if you can't from a BLS a twelve level lead, you
2: can't do it, I think yeah. you can still make that call very pretty confidently.
0: And I, so, the biggest thing is that we have to look for is just you know do the proper assessment, find out the story, figure out what happened with the patient. Chest pain is something that is, it's our bread and butter. It's one of the things that we deal with all the time. And it's very important that you're able to assess these patients properly. If you're concerned about their heart, you want to see what the heart looks like. Is the heart beating too fast? Is there too much pressure on the heart as reflected by the blood pressure? You have to know what the actual muscle of the heart is doing. And if the muscle of the heart shows that it's fine, normotensive, cardiac, then maybe you go down a different uh, treatment algorithm. But there are a lot of things that we need to take into consideration. So thank you all for listening to this episode. For The Overrun, my name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester and make sure to subscribe and follow us on YouTube, which is where we're doing all of our shows now. And we will talk to you next time. See you later.